Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd, a really, really, really exciting episode that um, Carol Garboden-Murray, who's here, and I have been looking forward to for a while. Um, joining us is Dr. Allison Clark. Hello. Hello. Very nice Hi. to be here. <laughs> so folks who've listened, uh, who listen or, or follow us on 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 FaceTime, I almost said, on social media, we'll have heard Carol and I talking about this book before. But Allison, you wrote a book called Slow Knowledge and the Unhurried Child, Time for Slow Pedagogies in Early Childhood Education. Um, and we're going to talk about it. So Allison, first, would you let folks know a little bit about yourself? Yes. So, um, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm Alison Clark. I started my uh, education journey as a, a primary school teacher, uh, teaching children from four to, to seven uh, in the UK. And my research work has been based around listening to young children, uh, working with Professor Peter Moss at the Institute of Education in London. We love him too. We <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've had the great privilege of working with Peter for nearly 30 years. And, um, and we developed an approach called the mosaic approach around listening to young children um and i'm based in um so now i'm based at a norwegian university uh whilst living in scotland <laughs> <laughs> wow but, um yeah. yeah so thank you and 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 you just won an award for the book you can share that too with everybody yeah, it's, well it's very it's always such a privilege as a writer to find your work being actually read because you can't take that for granted and so uh in the UK we have the nursery world awards so they're aimed at uh early childhood practitioners and um many nurseries are recognized in different ways and they also have a professional book category so this is for a book that's actually used and read by practitioners mm -hmm. And my book won the professional book of the year. Yeah. Congratulations Yay. again. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's jump in. We're going to start with just the very first part of the book as our quote um, hmm. to get the conversation started. So you start by writing this, this book grows out of an increasing concern about acceleration in education and in early childhood in particular, the need to run ever faster to maintain our pace in the world as expressed by the German sociologist Hartmut Rosa is being felt across all sectors of education, including higher education. Uh, I set out in these opening chapters <laughs> to point out some of the signs of this acceleration. And then you are, um, you discuss just relationship with time. Uh, uh, you sort of propose that we reconsider that. Um, this is really meaningful, important to me, and I know to Carol too, we have the same thing happening in the United States, of course, um, with with this idea that we need to get three-year-olds into public schools so we aren't falling behind. And um, I'm a college pr professor also, and we've moved from 16-week semesters to eight-week terms. And I just, I see it everywhere and it it hurts my uh, my heart and my brain a little bit. So um, so thank you for this work. But will you, will you talk a little bit about, um, because this, this is a research uh, uh, experience yeah. that you're describing as you go mm. through and kind of what what got you going and and 
why was yeah, it so well, important? I, I think I've been I've been very fortunate in able to to work between um, uh, early childhood education in the UK and in and in Norway and and in other Nordic countries. And I think one of the, the questions I was left, left with in talking with students and practitioners was um, particularly fascinated by the relationship to outdoors uh, in the Nordic settings, but also asking a question, well, what would this type of practice look like indoors? Because there seems to be a, a different relationship, different relationship with the children, with the materials and in the end, after a lot of discussion with lots of people and the, and the research is very much based on deep discussions with um, early childhood uh, researchers and educators across 11 countries, it felt that, that time was at the heart of this. That there was a different relationship with time outdoors or could be. Um, and that, that that is possible in, in indoors, but it kind of runs, um, it's, it was almost countercultural to some of the the practices that we find ourselves in in early childhood education mm -hmm. um, in many contexts, I think. Mm -hmm. So that was some of the starting points for thinking about what, what would slow look like uh, indoors. And these are ideas, some of these ideas are coming from the, uh, the slow movement that started with thinking about slow food. Um, and I understand that to be not just around the tempo, but around the sort of the relationship, the values, you know, what is seen as important. Mm -hmm. And I think in thinking about a slow early childhood education, we're, we're thinking about values, you know, mm -hmm. we're thinking about, okay, what do we want to be doing and why? And maybe to question some of the other things that, that shape our practice in ways we're, we're not happy with. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me that you started with looking at what was outside and how can we bring it in? Because mm -hmm. here for a while, at least in my experience, I don't know if you've experienced this too, Carol, there's lots of conversation about how we need to get our classrooms outside and outside mm -hmm. play needs to be just <laughs> as sort of um, pre-planned and, and academically focused <laughs> as yeah. the inside classroom is. So, yeah, yeah. so it's like yeah. a flip of what you're describing. <laughs> um, I like yours better. <laughs> yeah, but I very much relate to it thinking about COVID. And I was at a small nursery school during COVID and we were outside so much, right? And that was beautiful. And then we found ourselves really missing our block corner, right? I mean, we tried to do things outside the block building, but it was very different and mm -hmm. it was good. And, and, and I do appreciate this idea, but how do we take time as a material mm -hmm. when we move back inside to have that sort of feeling of expansiveness. And I, I really think of myself in the block corner, like missing that environment that is mm -hmm. the indoor space. Um, and how do we, how do we hold that, that relationship with time that we had in our mm -hmm. outdoor classroom during COVID mm -hmm. I, that I think that helped us a lot. Think about time differently. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the challenges uh, and this is where it relates to policy as well, is that, you know, I think during COVID for obviously our experiences will all be very personally will be very different. And some people had to really speed up uh, in order to make very swift changes to how they were working and living. And and I think for some of us, it was more of a slowing down and a kind of a, a, a sort of, um, uh, yeah, uh, th things drawing to a halt. Um, 
and in policy terms, what what I saw happening in the UK afterwards that that it was a very much a, a catching. We need to catch up. Children need to mm-hmm. catch up. We need to have them in school for longer. Uh, we need to you know sort of cram them with more things uh, quicker uh, in order to to catch up on what they've missed. And this seemed to be missing so much really i think so many children and educators really needed a time of recovery um and uh that that hasn't that hasn't been the main emphasis in our policy certainly in the uk um, mm-hmm. that was yeah. one of the one of the things that i had tagged here was just the a sentence you had written where you said ketchup is a visible and powerful indicator of the push towards accelerated childhood the the fear about which I really feel like is a manufactured fear that there was this great loss during COVID of learning that we needed to catch up on a, a, and a, a failure to see that we control the clock in that sense. Like if we're, if we're worried that they're falling behind instead of hurrying them, the children, why don't we look at the, the adults, the environment, the space, the expectations that we we're in control of that. We made those things up. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I I, I think um, uh, Carol's comment about 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 time as a material is really helpful because I think it I think often we take time for granted. You know, oh, it's just you know we have to work within these constraints. It's the clock on the wall. It's the it's the timetables, and and sometimes it's it's the way that that we have uh, experience in our own education and the way you know have to teach mm-hmm. in different sectors. So it's very much inbuilt and and sometimes implicit mm-hmm. and I think when you almost take it out of that it make it from implicit to explicit then I think it becomes more possible to look at well actually how can we use this thing called time with young yeah. children I was doing some um in-service training in a another set in um in Shetland um in Scotland um and one of the um local authority advisors said to me afterwards it had made her think about how do we make the best use of children's time? Mm-hmm. And I guess that's that's again, it's about values. It's about thinking actually, yes, mm-hmm. you know, we have this thing called time to use, and how can we use that well? Yeah. Um, um, yeah. yeah. One of the other things that you, that you wrote was uh, the question: whose time's being lost? The adults mm. or the child's? Mm. And I think yeah. that speaks to value. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, if if we're mm. if we put the focus back on the child and see it as the child's time that could change so much of what we do and really make some of it seem simpler. I, I think this idea of slowing things down and reclaiming time and um, uh, thinking about it differently. It's, it's hard for us because we think, but I have so much I have to do. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And uh, yeah. And, um, and I think what I don't want to happen is that, that this whole discussion becomes another burden on educators. You know, oh, I've got so much to do and yeah. I'm being told to slow down, you know, and I do, <laughs> do face that. Uh, people you know, do say that to me. Yeah. And I think, but I, um, I, I, I'm, I'm re- reminded of comments I've also had back from other educators who have been working with slow practice and they say, don't, don't look on this as another thing. <laughs> because it's not an extra thing on top of it's actually enabling you to do some of those things you'll maybe have missed which is spend more time being with the children which is one of the kind of key characteristics of being with and um uh yeah so so not an extra burden um but hopefully a way of reclaiming Mm -hmm. some ways of working Yeah. yeah 
I want to, I know Carol, you've got a lot that you want to talk about, but I want to go back for just a minute and give you a chance to kind of talk about what you mean by slow pedagogies. We, we kind of jumped right in, but I wanted to make it, as you said, more explicit, more, Mm. uh, more sort of focused since I just love the word pedagogy, um, as Mm. a, as a nerd and a reader, um, and an educator. But when you talk about slow pedagogies with young children, yeah, so I, I see it as an umbrella term, so not just one type of pedagogy. So it's not designed to be a, a kit that you kind of take off the wall. Uh, so it's an um, umbrella group of pedagogies that have an explicit relationship with time, um, that um, and that have a, a certain number of, um, of characteristics. Um, and so some of the characteristics that that um, emerged from the study was the ability for to be with children. So um, um, so to be to to be immersed in activities with children to um, to see that as a sort of central part, really, of, of our role as educators. Um, and and that can be that can have moments of great stillness and quiet and slowness but can actually be very fast because (laughs) children can run around (laughs) you know a student said to me I don't really like this slow stuff because I like to dance with children (laughs) and it was like no it's absolutely fine you know you can dance you it's about tuning in more to the rhythm of children Uh rather than of a of a lethargic kind of frozen Uh way of so being Uh with Enabling children to go um, to be comfortable with children going off track, as in away from the script, so that as educators in a slow pedagogy, you would be comfortable with children doing unexpected things, following their ideas in a direction you hadn't necessarily planned, Mm -hmm. Um, which doesn't mean that we don't plan, but it means that we are we are comfortable with this idea of uncertainty of not necessarily know knowing absolutely what's going to happen mm-hmm. um and about uh, in a slow pedagogy we're aiming not to have just a shallow encounter with children but to be able to dive deep with children mm-hmm. so again you're um you're providing a range of different um, materials and modes of expression for children um and um Yes, and this ability to to not be constrained with um, always constrained within very tight timetable, but uh, allowing for these stretched stretched time or unfragmented time uh, to happen. Um, and so, yeah, so this an, an umbrella group of pedagogies, um, lots of different characteristics, but another one would be to value the group as well as the individual because I think part of the always fast forward accelerated learning tends to put a lot of emphasis emphasis on the individual child. And I think in a slow pedagogy, there's also room to celebrate the group um, and, and to celebrate the difficult to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, I think um, that if we're only interested in the things that are easy to measure, then that tends to just limit what we do. Absolutely. So creativity, wonder, care are all things that are difficult to measure. Yeah. But are so yeah, I know, Carol, you wanted to talk about creativity and how it fits in uh, mm. with this idea of slow time and how children are allowed to be creative or not allowed to be creative. 
I was thinking like or, about, or, or welcome yeah, to be. Yeah. I was thinking almost more about art and creativity from the educator standpoint, oh. like hmm. having, how do we have, how does this pedagogy help us have autonomy? And, and we think about like using time as a material and then it becomes like a little bit, I don't know, um, ethereal, like an art and people have a hard time naming it. So I love hearing Allison like list those very practical characteristics. Mm. And I think like more and more, I'm looking for ways to um, say that it's not that mysterious, that it's, um, yes, art, it is an art, but every art has a craft and a practice, you know? So how do we educators practice this and how does it help us become creative, creative, (laughs) creative (laughs) and feel our, feel our agency and autonomy as educators as well. Like just expecting this surprise and expecting the unexpected, those Mm -hmm. kind of, um, those kind of terms feel so freeing to me as an educator. Well, I, I think in the in my questions to my participants and then in the book, what I've tried to do is to say, OK, but what does slow look like? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's OK to talk about the ideas, but again, it needs to be grounded. So so I have each of the, the I've then been looking at. So how to be slow? What are slow practices? And then I think when you kind of unpick what a slow practice is, then it's easier maybe to see what slow looks like Uh you know, day to day to day. Um, so, for example, in terms of the working with materials, um, um, one of um, my uh, interviewees coming from a Reggio background um, was describing her work with clay. And she describes how uh, clay has, how clay holds time in a particular way. So actually you can work with clay, you can gather it from uh, from the ground, you can uh, work with it when it's wet and sloppy, you can show children what happens when you fire it. So it, it has a particular, um, it, it has a particular memory, if you like, perhaps a, it has a different memory to something like Play-Doh, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think so that would be one example or, or for example, thinking of materials again, talking about working with wood in different ways. So, um, um, yeah, fr- from fr- from the forest or from in, 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 in woodworking uh, in an activity, but has so many different possibilities. Um, so I think, yes, to, to think about the practices. So what does slow look like? It has been my way to work with educators about the sort of practicalities, um, including things like how to be slow with a book. Mm. So this was a question that came from one of my Norwegian colleagues. And um, I'd never kind of put those that hadn't had that thought before you know it was kind of really intriguing then thought well actually there were lots of ways in which we involve children in stories that um uh, give them opportunities to stay with a story over time which might be inviting children to tell us a story uh to, to read the book themselves you know if they've listened to us tell a story a lot um in um in in kindergarten or uh it might be children making up their own stories and telling them to their peers um it might be uh, a class who actually works with a story over many many months um so one example was nearly over a year where 
the teachers it, it just it just grew with the children it grew the children became so interested in it that the whole it just kind of took over the whole year uh, in the life of these children so I think there are different slow can look different can can look differently according to the the practices we're thinking about but um it's only in drilling down into those details that I think we get to kind of think about okay what does it mean then for us as educators what does it mean for children um, as as you talk about like the the storytelling I, I just feel like there's so many wonderful things happening at my school right now that relate to this and okay. one of them is lunchtime with the four-year-olds um the children have been asking the teacher to tell them a story during lunch you know so mm. There's this incredible potential for conversation, right? At lunchtime, um, yeah. so we're we're looking at that that as a of such a valuable time of day, the care ritual of eating yeah. together, of being together, and having conversation. And then they're repeatedly asking for this story that the teacher isn't reading from a book. And I feel really good about that because I have mixed feelings about a teacher holding up images while children are eating because I want them to be in tune with their body. I don't want it to be like, oh, we're trying to entertain children, right? While while they're eating yeah, or yeah, watching television. Yeah. But, but the conversation has evolved to a story and the teacher will often say, okay, well, maybe when we get halfway through lunch, I'll start the story. And then she's found ways to have the children's voices lead the direction of the story so it changes oh, yes. it's a repetitive story but it changes slightly each day depending on yeah. ideas <laughs> and they're sort of thinking about their ideas all day so this is something that's just sort of emerged in our school and it it just feels really um it just feels like this deepening of conversation listening storytelling and care you know lunchtime it, it yeah. feels so rich. Yeah, so important. So so lunchtimes has actually been um, a, a real feature of some of the development projects that have grown from the, my original two-year project. And um, one of these has been with a group of um, early years settings in, in an area of Scotland called Falkirk. And um, we were working with uh, three settings and two of them chose to look at slow practices at mealtime and one chose to look at slow practice outdoors. And it, these were funded by the Froebel Trust to fund research with children under eight. And, and um, so, so the two settings that were looking at lunchtimes realized that lunchtime can be a very rushed part of the day and can sometimes be just a bit of a, mechanical you know oh, we've got to get children fed before we get on to the real business of the afternoon and so they they looked at ways of involving children far more in the process so children laying the tables children having more of a um, involvement in the preparation sometimes of the food or in snack time and then in making the the lunchtime something that um, adults were sharing with the children and with an emphasis on the children's agency in 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 helping themselves to the food um and 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 that's become for me that's become one of the ways into thinking about slow pedagogies and slow practices that it starts with something very concrete and then looks at the benefits of that the benefits for the adults who aren't rushing around doing everything and for the the children who have um hopefully a, a 
more relaxed and enjoyable meal times. I'm actually hearing that children eat more. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this is so quantified, but I mean that actually when the settings that have focused on thinking about how meal times could be different, they found actually, yeah, in the end of the day, we're throwing more, less food away, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. It, it, it sort of makes sense to me. Like I, I, so many meal times I've seen just feel so stressful. I don't want to yeah. eat when I'm stressed out, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so, yeah. so that's, um, and it, and sometimes you do need to have that. Well, here's a very practical thing to justify this dreamy thing. I've been telling you yes. that I, yes. that I need to do. Um, yeah. One of the other things you, you, um, or a, like a word that you use is timefulness and it's mm. full as an F U L L um, yeah. as as a concept in this conversation. Um, So I'd love to have you talk a little bit about Mm. timefulness. Yeah, well, it's been an interesting word because I found it from two different sources. So I found it from a theologian called John Swinton who talks about becoming friends of time. Mm. So he talks about timefulness and he's also talks about the sort of tyranny of the clock in some of his work. Um, And he's actually working with, um, talking about working with, adults with learning disabilities so kind of that made him rethink actually about work working finding the tempo of the people that you're working with Mm -hmm. when that was his way in so he talks about time timefulness and becoming friends of time um and the other source i found it from was in in geology um with thinking about timefulness as in taking the longer view over time and uh, you know sort of aware an awareness of the history of our planet and the resources that we have um and so both both directions both theology and geology take take the long view you know Mm -hmm. they're not just interested in the immediate um so there's something that i like about that word timefulness that it's this to me is not around timelessness which is another way another word that is used in some of the 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 conversations but to me this is about making the making a full use of time you know making children's time as rich as possible so that's why I like time fullness Mm -hmm. I like what you said about taking the long view and this sort of like Mm -hmm. paradox between being here with children Mm -hmm. you know I think about Lucy Sprague Mitchell like being here and now Mm -hmm. but also that being in the moment, being timeful is the preparation for the the long view, right? Because we get that yeah. pressure to get kids ready yeah. and, and we're kind of pushing against that, but we're also saying this is getting kids ready. This is, <laughs> yes. this is sinking in deep is, is actually going to prepare them. Yeah. And so it's kind of, I'd like to think about how we could embrace that and, and say, yes, we're getting kids ready by being here now, Yeah, but it is, yeah, it, it does it, seem like a juxtaposition a bit, right? I think it is. I think it is a paradox. So I ended up talking about here, here and now, and because, you know, this is about being fully in the present with the, ch- with the children, but it's also, and it's also being mindful of the history that they bring so I think you know rather than treat children as being an empty canvas that come to uh, early childhood education with 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 no background with no culture so we need to be mindful of their history and their past and their experiences and interests but also and to be conscious of the future 
uh, their future and I think the future of the planet as well mm-hmm. and a very troubled world at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it, this is not about not not readying children for the future, but um, uh, it, it is around trying to challenge just the school readiness type discourse. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, my allergies are driving me bonkers. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 I do think that a lot of times we're so focused, and we've got an episode coming up that's just about school readiness and 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 that how much just stress that adds to everybody's life. But it's mm-hmm. it's such a narrow thing to be spending the first five years of a child's life on. <clears throat> and when you talk about things like the the impact that that what we do now with young children could have on a on a world that's really in trouble mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. It yeah. deepens the work and it heightens our responsibility um in a way that goes so much further than do they know their ABCs and can yeah. they write enough of them mm-hmm. before they turn five. Yeah. I mean a, a lovely book that I I keep on referring back to is 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 Harriet Kafaro's book about John Dewey in, in the earliest classroom. So 1990s. Mm-hmm. And one of the things she says about time is that to allow time allow children to um, experience the consequences of their doing. So basically to under, you know, to, to learn what it is to make a mistake, to mm-hmm. learn you know, what happens if rather than adults always telling them. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's such an important part of being a problem solver, of being resilient. And these are all things that children um, as they grow older are going to need. You know, mm-hmm. we, we don't really know what, what say the workforce is going to need, uh, uh, but we do know, know I think that, that there need to be critical thinkers, problem solvers, creative, uh, because um, robots aren't so good at that. Mm-hmm. Right. I think even when you think about experiencing the consequence, you could also think about things like planting a seed, right? Like gardening, mm. all mm. the perennial yeah. experiences children can have yeah. through care and, you know, yes, um, harvesting the pumpkins from the seeds that they planted in the spring and, and maybe having mm. that experience a couple times in your early childhood is, is such a deep experience (laughs) and it is experiencing the consequence or 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 composting the food or you know Mm. finding the worms in the garden all those that are those are I also think about memory like the child's memory and when you're Mm -hmm. thinking about what will the child remember and I keep I keep coming to these what I having having been with young children for so many years what people come back to me usually with are number one they remember the care they remember like this is where I slept when I was here I remember nap time (laughs) or or they remember animals and things Mm -hmm. they cared for they remember the fish they remember the chicks they remember the garden (laughs) so like yeah if we could take from children what they remember then we could find what maybe is is and that relates to time right what is yeah. what is meaningful yeah. is here and now yeah. those those sensory deep experiences of care and being cared for and caring for others I can't tell you how many teenagers have come back to the nursery school and talked about the chickens or the or the goldfish or the <laughs> or the frog yeah. that we had yeah. and really <laughs> so so important so I mean that links a little bit to some of my work on listening to to young children so when working with children uh, there was one 
in a, a couple of the studies, children, I've asked children, can you show me what's important here? Has been my question. Mm. So, um, and um, one, I remember one, one boy, a three-year-old photographed this yellow plastic chair. And I always say, oh, can you tell me about your photo rather than, mm-hmm. oh, that's a lovely chair or something. And he said, oh yeah, no, that's that's where you sit when you've hurt yourself. Oh, wow. So it was basically, you know, that was the place. This was a very busy nursery in London. And um, so basically when you'd hurt yourself outside, you'd be, you could, you would be brought in and you would sit on the chair. And my sort of understanding of that was, and actually an adult paid attention to you, maybe even used your name, you know, mm. but I'm mm. sitting on this chair. So mm. I think children are able to, depending on the tools we give them, can actually uh, almost um, map out for us this landscape of care, hopefully, that they experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and and remember, I mean, I had another child who um, took me to, uh, in another project, took me to another part of the nursery where there was a, a display board of the members of staff. And she took a photograph of one of the, one of the photographs. And it turned out later that this was of her previous key worker who was now on maternity leave and had been off work for several for many months Mm. but the nursery decided to leave the photograph up and you know this child was saying actually you know you know my key worker is such an important part of me Mm -hmm. being here even though she's not here now but you know I'm telling you that she's really really (laughs) so I think we have so much to learn from young children about um yeah, what makes a place special, really. Yeah. That's yeah. so beautiful. We had a similar, we've been just recently trying to do more learning stories. And I think that mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. is a way to bring the child's experience back to them, right? To build in that yeah. sort of reflective yeah. practice with the child. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. had a similar thing where we we decided to have the portfolios physically in the classroom with photos and mm-hmm. stories and Great. things. Mm-hmm. And one of the children, we had a teacher who went on leave and she was a, a cancer survivor and she needed to mm-hmm. take about six months off for some some repeated um, mm-hmm. procedures. And this one-year-old, this baby was like maybe, I think 14 months old, kept going back to that page in the portfolio and just getting her face so close <laughs> to this the image of her caregiver who was on leave and just like the teachers were joking about how that page in the book was slobbered on (laughs) but she I mean just to watch her study the Mm -hmm. image of her caregiver who she was missing and who she identified with while she was in this place was so moving it was just so moving to all of us like the children have so much to tell us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that so I guess that opens up another part of this is 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 I think young children have maybe a different sense, a different experience of time. Right. From us, their subjective experience of time may be different. And we're only just beginning maybe to understand that. And I think things that we think, oh, maybe, oh, that's done and dusted, we can tidy that away. Actually, no, maybe, maybe not. You know, so I've had experiences of um children when they've made a map of their own photographs and then um a teacher deciding well well actually we finished doing this project now mm-hmm. so you know was and began to take the map off the floor where it was and this child was really mortified and just said don't you love me anymore oh boy <laughs> and it was actually you know that uh, so it, <clears throat> it it was kind of resolved by realizing by talking with him and explaining 
it needed to move, but could they find somewhere else? And they, you know, the child and the educator together found a solution. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, it was quite um, poignant, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We we keep talking about, um, well, you two too, I'm just enjoying listening to you two talk, but about <laughs> listening to children. And, and, and it, at least in one point in the book, you call it, you say we have to be persistent listeners. But what I'm hearing mm -hmm. you describing is a lot of watching, um, watching mm -hmm. to listen kind of it's it's not yes. just, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's a it's a bigger concept than just hearing what's happening around you or, or slightly yeah. noticing every now and again, what kinds of things you know, looking to see if they're interested in trains so we can bring train books in or something. This is so much deeper um, and requires a slowing of everything, the space, the person, your own mind, mm. you know, it, mm. it's, it's really yeah. uh, lovely to think about. I think it's like, it's like the reason I don't call myself a Reggio educator here in the United States, because I think it's the piece that's missing from so many schools is how do we listen to children? Like that's the part right. of the show that's most important to me. Yeah. And I do yeah. think that it's, it's, we love it's, the clock time here in the United States. We love the, <laughs> we love the images. We love the baskets. We love the <clears throat> self portraits and the still lifes and all these things that we think are Reggio, but this, this pedagogy of listening. Um, and I think it's confusing for educators because especially when you're working with twos and threes, they think it's about hearing the child's voice, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. then and then constructing sort of language experiences where we record what the children say in response to our question that might not be a great question. Yeah. <laughs> so no. like no, no. <laughs> how to understand these multiple ways of listening to children is so it's 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 incredibly valuable. I'm so grateful that you're doing this work, Allison. No, thank you. Well, and, and I think I guess it, it t I do talk about slow research, which I think always needs to start with, in terms of young children, always needs to start with observation, mm -hmm. because, yeah. you know, yes, we can be inventive about the different expressive tools that we enable that we give to children or that we tune into, but um, it does need to start with deep observation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's and a I lot of, oh, no, I just think, Alison, you're often I mean, when you talk about listening, you're often talking about observing, right? Hmm. When you're, yes, yeah, I think it, it's 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 observing, and yeah, it, it's it is it is also the, the the voice of the child, but I think but I think it's starting from watching, observing, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, has there been? Um, I'll say pushback for the for the lack of a, a more nuanced word mm, coming mm. to my mind, but about the because it is really this this whole idea works against the current climate yeah. and priorities yeah. of of certainly what we're doing here in the United States. And it sounds like what's happening in the UK isn't too dissimilar. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. So um I'm involved in quite a lot of in, in service work with educators and um so, for example, this week I've been in Orkney, where I live in, in Scotland, a group of islands. And um, one of the educators I was talking to had a role where she was uh, working uh, because it's a rural, very small rural school. So she was working across the age range from, say, five to nine mm -hmm. years old. And she was having a real difficulty in in grasping with um 
well, she was saying, okay, this slow stuff is okay, but then we have to get on with the work. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that that's uh, an interesting observation. And, and I think, so I was talking to her around, well, what does slow enable? So what can it enable in terms of the children's thinking? Mm -hmm. So it's not just a sort of, it's not a relaxation tool. It's actually, we're talking about thinking processes here. Mm -hmm. Um, so, for example, I think the idea of giving children time to revisit what they have been working on or discovering is such an important pedagogical principle. Mm -hmm. And I think if if we slow down the process, make it less hurried, but also enable children more chance to 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 look again, to rethink, then I think that's um, that's real work. You know, mm -hmm. that's. That, that's serious stuff um so yes that's kind of one of the pushbacks you know uh, yeah but what about the real stuff yeah, thing? yeah. we'll have slow time um, at three o'clock <laughs> yeah that's right yes yes yeah <laughs> um so uh, and I think it you know it's difficult when we're working within very tight timetabled systems mm -hmm. um so the other challenge is, say, talking with colleagues in higher education and just as as you were saying, Heather, about the shrinking of um, the number of weeks that a course has to be taught in, you know, that type of really difficult, difficult uh, constraints. Um, it's not necessarily pushback, but might be kind of more despair. You know? mm -hmm. Yes. But actually, this is so different from where we are that actually it's just distressing to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And um, and I guess I think it's um, well, I guess, it, as Peter Moss has also said, if we don't talk about the alternatives, then the alternatives are less likely to happen. We need to have the language we need to, you know, we, we need to be. Um, trying some of these ideas in the small ways that we can in mm -hmm. order to be more ready when opportunities come so I tend to talk about you know sort of having a looking for the slow moments you know so this is not about starting from okay we're going to totally radically change everything we do but no where are the slow moments where do you find in in your day with young children that actually you're more relaxed or the children are more relaxed and how can you then build on that you know mm -hmm. what's making that possible who are you with where are you what are you doing is there something there that you could um expand on yeah I love what's making that possible that's such a good question um, yeah and yeah. and and I love everything you just said because I have been feeling as as I teach my classes this eight weeks um sometimes I'm like uh you know, we're talking about ideals and I know what they're facing in the real world. <laughs> and I, and I get this mismatch, mm -hmm. just, just stressing myself out as a, as an instructor. Yeah. So um, thinking of it in that way is really, really, um, I think yeah. very helpful. And probably I'm not the only yeah. one feeling that way, listening to this conversation. I think no, it and I think that's, be... that's the value. Yeah. I'm sorry. sorry I was, that's I was that's the value of a, of a online community community yeah. as well of what you're doing with the podcast because I think I also say you know find your allies yeah <laughs> and that yeah. could be at, at online or in your neighborhood but find yeah. people who are thinking like you and then and then together build up these slow mm -hmm. moments yeah 
What were you going to say, Carol? I was just saying that I hear, I hear in, in Allison's work, I hear her naming the everyday, you know, Mm -hmm. the everyday Mm -hmm. moments that the care and the, and I think you said um, something like in between moments, like you live alongside children. There's all those transitional times where you're Mm -hmm. getting a drink of water, where you're putting on a bandaid, where you're walking down the hall together. It's like the everyday and the in between it's like, it's like challenging thinkers to consider that children don't need to be taught Mm -hmm. to learn Mm -hmm. that life Mm -hmm. is giving them opportunity to make meaning all the time. And, uh, I think that's the beauty. What's the other book that recently came out from, um, reframing the the everyday. Yeah. Have you seen that one conceptualizing the mundane? So like, (laughs) nice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Naming the everyday. And I think you talked about a was it a Swedish concept or a Danish concept of like the dead mouse pedagogy, <laughs> something like oh, that? Oh, yes. I love the dead mouse pedagogy. Oh, well, I, I've, had a, I've had a really interesting conversation about the dead mouse pedagogy because my book is actually being translated into Japanese at the moment. And so I've had this conversation with a whole team of Japanese translators and I had an email this week and it said, Alison, dear Alison, can you explain what is dead mouse pedagogy? <laughs> I was like, okay. So this was this phrase came from a Norwegian colleague, and she explained it to me that basically, it's about being open to the unexpected and and starting from the child. So if a child comes in, <laughs> reaches into their pocket and brings out a dead mouse, so then you don't freak and kind of tell them to throw it away, but you actually kind of okay, that's that's uh-huh, well, uh-huh. that's interesting. Let's see. Does anyone know what this is? You know, so you kind of yeah. work with that because you, you you're looking for that spark of interest in the children, and then you bring your your skill mm-hmm. as an educator to that to think, well, okay, how how can what can we learn from this? How can we explore this? Um, and I think that can be, th- th- there are some children who, you know, metaphorically always come with their pockets full of all sorts of exciting things that they want to talk to us about and what they've done, you know, and then you'll have the, the very silent child who might be very difficult to find out. And that's, you know, that's even more professionally skillful to find mm-hmm. out, okay, what is that spark? What What is it that they actually you know, their eyes light up when you bring a certain story out or they're playing with a certain material and, and then how you build on that with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And last year, our, our one of the fraught, we had, we usually do like a catch and release, you know, we have some amphibians in the room and then we set them free, but one of the frogs died in the process and the teachers thought they had taken care of it. They put it in a box. <laughs> They put it in a box and like, okay, children, the fog is in the box, you know, it's dead. And then they were like texting me, Carol, the kids want to look at the frog. What do we do? <laughs> look at the frog. <laughs> I think that's the dead the dead mouse pedagogy yeah. is too. They're gonna take you to this place that you really mm-hmm. don't want to go, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So yes. I came down and we opened the box and we passed the box around and we looked at the dead frog and we had this great conversation. But it's not always easy to go where the children want to mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. No, 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 yeah, no, that's right. No. Yeah, well, that's a great wind down story. <laughs> Yes, it's yeah. Um, So thank you so much for this conversation and for the book, Um, Allison, and congratulations on the award. Um, 
we'll we'll put a link in the description for this episode of where people can get the book if they decide they they need it after after hearing you and I, I I'm sure that they will um and thanks Carol for joining in I'm so grateful I'm so grateful to the work you're doing it's giving so much language to what yeah. what kids need yeah thank you thank you again thank Alice. you both very much a real yeah. pleasure to talk to you both yeah. thank you thank okay you. and thanks everybody for listening to another episode of that early childhood nerd and that's the show now go get your nerd on has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.